Hey, if you think you might be lost because you got lots of new thoughts, I'll be informed. Or if you're feeling like a fool, cause you've been used just like a tool since you were born. Hey, if you're trying to get through life, then friend, I've got some great advice for not growing horns. They say that ignorance is bliss, but if you knew, then you'd be pissed, so get informed. I'm just a kid and life is a nightmare. I'm just a kid and I know it's not fair. Anyway, hello and welcome back to <laughs> Getting Informed, a leftist lit podcast where I am, oh my God, so fucking tired. And my name is Al Gropi. She hers. And I am joined by my co-host. Hi, I have a mouthful of pumpkin bread. He, him, and joining us is our guest. Jesse Fishkin, no pronoun preference. Yeah. And we are going, please, please speak instead of me. Please. Oh, fuck. We're going to be discussing some essays here. We're going to be finishing our discussion on meaningfulness in time and moving on to the story of a life by Auntie. Nope. Kuponian. Nope. The story of a life by Connie S. Rosati, respectively. Never mind. Do it again. Who would win? Al Gropi or the word respectively? I was being. Take your back. I was being an asshole. Please say it again. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, today we're going to be finishing our discussion. Oh God! Today we're going to be finishing our discussion on meaningfulness in time and the story of a life by Auntie Kwaoinian and Connie S. Rosati, respectively. Put some respect on their name. We may not know what it is, but put some respect on it. <laughs> All right, where were we? First, news. Oh, I cleared all the news. God fucking damn it. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. That's not true. Oh, it's so sad. This one You torture me every single day. That's every correct. day. Um, so the ACLU, uh, this is according to CNN, the uh, ACLU of Hawaii is demanding policy changes after a f- uh, 10-year-old black girl was arrested at her school over a uh, drawing linked to a run-of-the-mill dispute, quote, run-of-the-mill, unquote, dispute between two children because a parent got upset over uh, the content of her drawing. The cops were called. She was, I believe, cuffed and arrested, uh, a 10-year-old. So the ACLU is suing for 500 k in damages, uh, and I hope they fucking get it. Yeah, it's fucking ridiculous. I'm glad I had my beer. I cannot cope with that sober. Yep. Uh, Here's a really good one. Um, Have you guys ever heard of Daniel Baker from Florida? I feel like at some point I heard something, but not... Uh, So Daniel Baker is a Florida anarchist uh, who made posts calling for uh, a left-wing defense of state buildings in an armed fashion against right-wing insurgents on January 6th, because he, he was supposing that the Florida um, state buildings might be attacked as well uh, because there were attacks in dozens of states on January 6th, not just in DC. 
But uh, he made calls to use, I believe the phrase was every caliber to drive these right wingers out of the state buildings. Uh, and he's currently facing four years in prison for making threats on Facebook. That's more than some of the people who got caught in January 6th served. Four times more, actually. Yeah, because actually wait, they didn't. Yeah, they got yeah. off. Uh-huh. Fucking. So yeah, there's a Florida anarchist uh, currently slated to do four years for making Facebook posts. Just because uh-huh. he's an anarchist. Because he's an anarchist and he made those posts. But the people who actually did anything. Oh. Speaking of Facebook. No. Yes. Uh, so Facebook rebranded. And Jesse, could you tell me the new name of uh, Facebook Incorporated? Yes. Oh, no. Facebook shall be henceforth known as Meta. M-E-T-A. Are you kidding me? Nope. And that's, that's just the name of the company. Yeah. They're Facebook, the Facebook, app. Yeah. They're keeping Facebook, the app, the same. But the company is named Meta now. That is so pretentious. <laughs> It's also an obvious distraction from the Facebook papers, which is, you know, detailing Facebook's many, many crimes, including. uh, So two years ago, Apple almost pulled Facebook from the Apple store. Ooh, they didn't, but they almost did. This is from the Associated Press. Facebook acknowledged an internal document uh, in internal documents obtained by the AP that it was, quote, under enforcing on confirmed abusive activity that saw Filipina maids complaining on the social media site of being abused. Apple relented and Facebook and Instagram remained on the App Store, quote, but Facebook's crackdown seemed to have had limited effect. Even today, a quick search for Khadima or maids in Arabic will bring up accounts fixture. Uh, uh, featuring posed photographs of Africans and South Asians with Asia, ages and prices listed next to their images. That's, that's even as the Philippines government has a team of workers that do nothing but scour Facebook posts each day to try and protect desperate job seekers from criminal gangs and unscrupulous recruiters. Damn. You know, I, I thought I was unfazable at this point. That one is a new level of dark and fucked up. That's fucking low. This is after they aided and abetted the Myanmar government uh, in yeah. doing a genocide against the Rohingya Muslims. Yeah. They're, they're like still straight up doing sex trafficking. Oh, God. Which, remember when right-wingers thought that sex trafficking was happening in Wayf- Wayfair? Mm-hmm. Uh, I love how right-wing conspiracies are like, no, no, this is happening, but it's right fucking in front of you. It's mm-hmm. not in disguise. You can just search made on Facebook and be offered fucking hideous speaking of hideous Eamon Bundy uh, you have two minutes he's recruiting in Idaho um, his, his base is growing every day that's all um, Oregon's redistricting map got an F grade uh, uh, according to Princeton University's gerrymandering project Jesse that was funny did. Uh, nope, it, got an, it. it got an F when it comes to partisan fairness and competitiveness, but a C when it comes to geography. The reasoning for that being that huge swaths of the state are essentially unpopulated. Oh. And so drawing competitive districts is really difficult, given that there's a weird mountain range that runs down the middle of the state. Half the state lives in Portland. Um, like, it, it's a nightmare for drawing districts, and uh, the way that they did it according to Princeton, was not awesome, but could have been worse. So here's a really fun thing. So you know how there's a progressive caucus? No. In Congress? <laughs> Sorry, continue. 
So Progressive Caucus Chairwoman Pramila Jayapal was apparently kicked out, quote unquote, of the infrastructure uh, meeting of a meeting to discuss the bipartisan infrastructure legislation, allegedly bipartisan. Nancy Pelosi apparently kicked out the head of the um, Progressive Caucus, uh, Jayapal, from the meeting. Uh, According to a second staffer, Pelosi, quote, probably wanted, unquote, to take progressives temperature. However, the staffer said this likely created an awkward situation since progressives typically expect a family discussion, quote unquote, within their caucus. Uh, So essentially, Pelosi may have been asking, how do you feel about us caving to mansion and cinema constantly? And Jayapal may have said bad, at which point Pelosi asked her to leave the meeting for honesty, for being honest. That is, again, my conjecture Listen, from the article. Based on our government, that sounds about right. This is from theuprising.info, which uh, is a uh, smaller, but yeah, it's a, it's a smaller news source. So that's some news. Uh, oh, there was huge fucking flooding in Tuscany also, like five foot deep water. Let's not forget that the climate is a changing Okay, let's move on to our discussion, shall we? Uh, yeah. Well, we left off. We left off. We oft left the subject of discussion. Uh, no, we left off last week. Uh, well, um, we got into point two of meaningfulness of, of a life. I can't even meaningfulness in time. Oh my lord! I just combined the story, the different article names. Meaningfulness of a life. Well, honestly, that's kind of the thesis statement. So. True. We uh, began and got a little bit into the concept and conceptions of meaningfulness, um, speaking on the difference between things that are meaningful to us personally and things that are the ideal of meaningful. Um, but then we got kind of derailed talking about our personal philosophies and the different schools, of, some different schools of philosophy. And um, so we kind of, I don't know if we touched on all of two, but we were getting towards the end. Um they because we talked about how it some people believe that just doing something that is meaningful to you that you have your whole heart in makes your life meaningful but they pointed out yo that doesn't mean that your pursuit was a meaningful one and so just to round out the second point i'll say this and then if there's anything else we want to throw in feel please feel free. Wow, my words aren't even working now. But this quote basically sums it up, which is you have to combine the two. You both have to do something that is objectively meaningful and have your whole heart in it because it won't mean jack shit to you if you're just doing it for a bad reason. And it's a slogan from Wolf that is, in a meaningful life, subjective attraction meets objective attractiveness. Um, But we move on. We move on to point three, the narrative shape of a life, which is where we enter discussion of the Aristotelian unities. <laughs> the bane of my sophomore year theater degree. <laughs> and again, I brush up against, they basically point out that even in Aristotle's unities, like his perfect unities of drama, there is eventually a telos, this great climax of life, um, where beyond which is what has now been called the denouement, but it is basically just like the falling action and then the end. And as you pointed out in our first episode, Jesse, where this comes into talk of hospice care is because people are feeling like the meanings of their lives 
have ended, but they're still alive. Hence the inappropriate behavior in American U.S. hospitals and their relationship to hospice. And partially because of that, and partially because of just, again, this brush up that I have of not feeling like, oh God, do you hear that motorcycle starting outside my window? Not again. Anyway, I just feel like you can't describe something like Aristotle's Unities to any one person's life. And while it's very helpful to be able to go back and reconceptualize your experience as fitting this kind of rising and falling structure, like, like as you, it kind of, you know, it points out what you said. Let's take one of the anecdotes from the first section about uh, the woman that works really hard and eventually succeeds. If she does that all by 30, what's she going to do with the rest of her lifespan? Like, how, how does that affect her meaning if her telos, her climax of her Aristotelian unities happens so early on? Like, I just, it rubs me the wrong way, but we can still talk about it. Um, he basically says, and he even quotes Aristotle at one point, says, as Aristotle himself suggests when he talks about tragedy being an imitation or mimesis of actions in life, the plot structure of an Aristotelian unity non-coincidentally corresponds to the structure of temporarily extended human action with no doubt explains its popularity in stories that are about the doings of human beings. Going back to the definition of meaningfulness, I did really like it because it, it acknowledged the problem that you can assert meaningfulness for anyone other than yourself. And it said just like, you know, meaningfulness is when the feeling of leading a meaningful life feels appropriate to you. And I think the further explanation within the Aristotelian narrative honestly harms that original point by trying to overcomplexify it. That's not a word, whatever. And complicate it, same thing. Yeah, over overcomplicate it and try to set it in stone. But just the idea that at the end of the day, what makes a life meaningful is if when somebody says to you, hey, you've led a meaningful life, you think, yeah, I guess I have. And you know, I really liked that thesis. And I think that does tie into narrative, but definitely not on as an objective a lens that we're being presented. I completely agree, actually. I think his argument would have been stronger if he didn't. Basically what you were saying, I was about to just restate what you said, um, and I still will. I do think his argument would have been stronger and I would have been more inclined to believe it if he didn't assign it to a rigid structure like the Aristotelian unities. I agree. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm sorry I did just repeat what you said but when you said it I in my mind thought that's this I like that <laughs> I mean there's a fair amount of that throughout the article I think and Al I think that's one of your major problems is the ascription of rules and uh, measurements to what is otherwise a fairly simple thought experiment helps in the way that it feels more scientific, but also harms in the sense that the more you do it, the more ivory tower it becomes. <clears throat> but I do like the thesis as you like that is supported. I think enough by his other arguments, regardless of my disagreements with the arguments are coming from a, like a step above what the arguments actually are. Like just disagreeing with the whole, like ascribing notions to anything. And I know that's a problem when it comes to actually talking about it but i do agree essentially with the points that he uses to support his argument and i do like the thesis of like as long as you can take pride in it and it would not be unreasonable for you to take pride in it like 
you lived a good life. But I'm back to the text that we were talking about um, when we're going into Aristotle's Unities and they offer talks about projects. Like as long as you are engaged in a series of projects that can extend that telos of your life, like make the best point of your life now and like put you further closer words, put you closer to your most potential, then you're living a good life. And like she, he, they calls it chapters, the different chapters of your life. But then also points out the argument from before, but not all projects are the same. Not all projects are meaningful. And that irritated me because, hey, if making little hats for frogs makes you happy and you want to do it for the rest of your life, you should build a business around it and fucking do it. That's my uh, point. That's my uh, standard of living. True. I think it. the author really believes very implicitly, and they never said it, in this idea of immortality through the, the works you leave behind mm. and they definitely associated the idea of a meaningful life as being one in which you reach that level of immortality in that your name is remembered and if your project yeah. isn't that then it's not necessarily meaningful and I agree that that is some that is some bullshit right there yeah um, whatever your project is let that be your project mm-hmm. but the structure of the argument still feels right. And I can't give any better explanation than, yeah, that checks out in my brain. I mean, you guys have read some Terry Pratchett in your time, right? Boy, have I. I so, Terry, oh, really? Oh, dude. You'd love it, Jesse. You'd love it. Um, <laughs> Terry explores this idea. He briefly mentions it uh, in that in his universe, there are trolls. Uh, like huge rock men that live for hundreds of years but are not that bright. Um, and the trolls believe that your uh, your life doesn't end until you have been completely forgotten. And so the sort of your existence, your life is defined by your existence in the perception of others rather than uh, your physical Live, like your your physical body being alive, and I thought that uh, that rang true. And, um, one of my friends, I was talking about Terry Pratchett. And my friend said, "Oh, he should have been a philosopher. His talent was wasted as a as a novelist." Um, and uh, it rings true every day, except I think fantasy novels can be a form of philosophy in and of themselves. Yeah. Fuck you. No, good. novelists are just people who are able to break out of philosophy and actually do something meaningful with their lives. Don't at me. I'm just kidding. I wish, honestly. And I do love that bit of project, although I disagree and bring it back to the text. I think now that you pointed it out that he does have that inherent, I guess it's, I wouldn't call it a bias, but is coloring his argument without his maybe even awareness of it. I'm back on pronouns. Um, But the author thinks that a meaningful they do draw from like other people's perceptions of what meaning is and what value is even in i just noticed in the earlier section when they say if you if no one would judge you for being proud of your life it was meaningful like why does it matter what anyone else thinks yeah no true we can't disprove solipsism don't listen to other people's critiques I mean, okay, maybe, okay, I, maybe I do slide towards solipsism sometimes, 
but <laughs> oh no that wasn't like uh, a negative i totally endorse that viewpoint wholeheartedly honestly it's it's the part of me that's a little bit solipsist that is the part that used to be used to think they were a libertarian um because the first sentence on paper just like everyone does whatever the hell they want and no one controls anyone i was like yes <laughs> i think it's important to note that in Almost every country except the United States, libertarian means anarchist, uh, while in the U.S. it tends to mean somebody who's deeply concerned about the age of consent. <laughs> I think we said that exact sentence on this podcast the last time I said that I used to think I was a libertarian. But like, you know, it, it does apply that everywhere else it is this, this very different and much better thing. Mm. And the Orboros eats its own head. Anyway. <laughs> I do, but exactly. Like, it, it is still a solipsist argument to say we shouldn't care about um, the critiques of others. Uh, that, like, because humans are a social creature. Like, we are all relational in the way that we think and talk to each other. So, of course, other people's opinions matter. But I think that partially that speaks to when we were talking earlier about the ideals, like the Aristotelian ideals, the golden idea of what is a tree, for example, if we crowd, if it were basically like crowdsourcing the idea of what a tree is based on everyone's opinions, I think even then you're not going to reach a consensus that is meaningful beyond what it means to be human. Like if we're talking about philosophy in the sense of truths of the universe, humans don't know them. So just what other people think is not a good metric for what is ideally good in my eyes. However, that's irrelevant. Um, I would love a retort. Uh, I would love to think different. <laughs> I don't have a retort, but I have a tangent that I want to go down on solipsism, which is the, yes. at least the way I rationalize it. Solipsism cannot be disproven, but even if it's true, it shouldn't change the way you think or act in your day-to-day -day life. There's nothing that anyone can do that can convince you you're not in the matrix and that you're the only human in said matrix. But that said, given that the rules of the matrix seem to be you need to eat, you need to breathe, you need to make money, you need to exist within society, put on Joker makeup, for now, you need to make money. True. But yeah, as long as the rules of the matrix, whether they are real or not, pertain to you, then it is within your best interest to act on them and treat them as real, even if in your heart of hearts you know them not to be. Exactly. I agree completely. I think maybe, well, because there hasn't been like a recent resurgence in the solipsism unit in a long um, unit, uh, school of thought in a long time, right? Like the original solipsists. At least with the, Greeks, with the classes that I've taken in the last four years, there seem to be a lot of them, but that just could be my oh. fancy schmancy liberal arts college. Yeah, I maybe just didn't get the same experience because I was a minor. Like, I probably just don't know about all the modern unit movements. But um, as for the matrix theory, I think I agree. You wouldn't change at all like what you did and i think that the trait that i take most strongly from that theory is not so much the idea that i am the only thing that quote matters like i am the only real thing and more so i am only ever going to experience this perception 
I am the only perception I will ever know. So I have to judge everything based on the knowledge I've accumulated in this perception. I but, deep, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I deeply wish more solipsists would take that standpoint. It would make them far less annoying. Yes. Solipsis, I mean, it's so fucking annoying. It's so the worst. Hi. <laughs> uh, isn't it true? Isn't solipsism annoying as heck? The fucking worst, dude. <laughs> Just the pits. <laughs> Anywho, tangents on tangents aside. Ah. I could do episodes of this. I could just do a whole podcast of this. Colin, you were going to say? There's more NSA we have to cover. (laughs) Have the turntables, Al. How they have. (laughs) Let me have this. Uh, (laughs) Um, You just give me a second. I shan't. I shall. Um, I gotta, I gotta. Okay, but we were about to discuss ideally meaningful lives. Point four, correct? Yes. Um, sorry, I skipped ahead to 4.2. Yes. We can get to 4.2 pretty quick if you want. I just wanted to point out that once again, um, we are referencing Martin Luther King Jr. I think, yeah, right? The author mm-hmm. means Martin Luther King Jr. They just only mm-hmm. call them Martin okay so that's another thing um the author will say martin luther king means martin luther king jr and they are once again pointing to his life as an ideally meaningful life primarily the 1955-56 montgomery bus boycott which uh what meaningful for the civil rights movement yes did martin luther king have a good time during it no so using it as the climax of his life and his influence and his assassination was not long after this. Yeah. It reads a bit martyr worshiping to me. We discussed earlier his implicit bias towards being remembered, having a legacy. And this is, this reads that to me just a little bit, just this beginning section. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, insofar as the idea of a meaningful life is one in which all your chapters build toward a certain goal, I think the best way to be remembered for that is getting close but not actually reaching that goal. And uh, martyrdom. Precisely. And that would also explain why he ranked the person who did good work and then failed miserably by happenstance as higher than the person who actually had a happy ending. True. And he points to tragedy in his Aristotelian unity section. Okay, sorry. Now my brain's doing the whole, like, that meme with the boom, big brain moment. No, you're, oh. like, you are right. There's a fair amount of um, murder worshipping in this. But that's, like, a thing that happens. And so the fact that the author doesn't address it is what's interesting. Because yeah. it's, like, an, uh, I'm sure it's not unconscious, but it is, like, an ideological through line that isn't addressed. Mm-hmm. I, that's why I think it's unconscious because there's vocabulary to say like martyrs and heroes and like geniuses. Yeah. Anyway. I, yeah. I'm going to have to reread this paper for like uh, the umpteenth time, just thinking only about that. Cause I have no clue. I see it both ways. 
Well, where do you, do you want to talk about the, how you got it when you first read the paper? Cause you're the only one that's read both of these papers before we brought them to the podcast. These were part of your research. For your yeah, thesis, I was correct? looking at it totally through the lens of hospice and of course. there is a quote, let me find it. Uh, yada, yada, yada. And it just, it made everything click, at least for me for hospice and oh, yeah. I'm, willing to admit that it definitely might have blinded me to some of the critiques that you pointed out, Al, that I am fully willing to admit I didn't see before, but think are very valid. Well, it was the poem that oh. they incorporated because the way they described the death of the farmhand was just like, yeah, no, that's how you feel when you die in hospice. Yeah. Yeah, the Robert Frost poem describing the sad experience of a dying ranch hand. And the quote is, and nothing to look backward to with pride and nothing to look forward to with hope. End quote. If there is no room for such emotions in the hired hand's life, there is nothing much at stake in his going on living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was, it was just that idea with the, the local and global value. If all of your global needs have already been met and it's all just sort of a past memory, it's, it's just there's nothing to look forward to with hope. Even if you have the local pleasures and the local hedonist moments, there's, there's no point to it other than as a distraction from the reality of the end. And I, I bring implicitly into my own interpretation that if there is anything that could be called a universal truth, um, it would be this. And I fully admit before I state it, there are so many cases in which it is not the case, but it does seem to be the majority of the time. People want to die a death that means something. Yeah. I, it's really so fascinating that we both read this just coming from different places because from a hospice perspective, I completely agree. And not even to mention the fact that everyone, I do agree with the assertion that everyone views themselves as a hero of a story. Like I think maybe it wasn't always like that. Maybe one day with the, well, cause literature wasn't always popular. I think with the popularization of media depicting stories in like print, people were like, I'm the hero. I, but maybe even before that, I mean, stories have been written for as long as time, but like history is the longest story. A, a tale as old as tales. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe that was a that was a dumb place to start. But yes, I agree with everyone sees themselves as the hero of their own story. So like having the idea that yes, it is a story and it had a neat conclusion is beneficial to the mental health and probably the physical health due to like how sensitive people I I don't know the medicine of it, but like I I met I know people that have died from heartbreak. Like I had, you know, there's always that a spouse will die sometimes very shortly after their partner does because they're so upset and uh, we're getting into it tonight, folks. We're getting deep. Um, I know that your mental state has a great impact on your physical health and yeah, it's really noble to try and apply that notion to hospice care, I think. But I do think the alternative and one that should be applied synthetically with that would be to still give them the pleasures. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like elder facility, like living care facilities don't do enough. It's all shuffleboard and bingo. Take them dancing, take them to a pond, like 
there are experiences that are, aren't quantifiable as just things old people like that people would want to relive before death. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the two thought patterns that came up in the response to that was just cards on the table. Like the reason that I chose to do the hospice as my thesis was because my grandmother is 93. She's the smartest person I have ever met. And she is in hospice basically wasting away. And as a result, she's her dreams are her reality and her reality are her dreams because that's the way her brain is coping with the, the just waiting for death that she's experiencing. And over the summer, both my parents had serious medical problems. And so I was taking care of her and I was just sort of stuck in hospice day in and day out. And I was like, damn, this shit is fucked up. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing, the solution that I really like is, do you know the idea of a, uh, a Dharma? I feel like I've heard that no. before. So instead of, it's an alternative in birthing. So instead of doing a sort of medicalized, hospitalized birth where you get medical birth training, you get prescriptions, and then you decide either I want to have a natural birth or a C-section, what you do is you get a, uh, a Dharma, which is someone that you choose, and they, they live with you from the time that you know you're pregnant to the time that you, are, you give birth. And whatever you say goes, and their job is to just facilitate your desires to the best of their abilities. And mm. I think the solution for hospice is we need death dharmas. It, like a in-home hospice, but full-time hospice? Yeah, exactly. Because originally how hospice worked was it was not paid employees. It was entirely volunteer run. Oh. They didn't want a profit motive in the people helping out. We and, love socialist practices. And <laughs> even further than that, they knew that the people who would take these jobs would be nurses and medical staff, and they didn't yeah. want people who were trained in medicine that perpetuated life in a situation where it should be up to the individual whether or not they want their life to continue. Fascinating. Yeah, like, my whole idea is instead of thinking about quality of life, allocate that to everything but hospice and make hospice all about quality of death. Yo. I'm here for that shit. Quality of death. There's um two things to do with the, the narrativist ending there. Uh, you could honestly think of that as if we're if we're going with the Aristotelian unities and a stage play, you could think of that as the curtain call. Uh, yeah. uh a real like a a real nice go around before the curtains close, so to speak. And also you you mentioned earlier this is like five minutes ago now, uh, but you referenced uh, deaths not meaning anything. And I think that that, I think the narrativist argument generally really elevates the position of martyr as a, like an idea and the idea of dying for something in a narrativist um, framework really ties in with that. The idea that your death as a culmination of your story rather than a falling action ties in really well ideologically with martyrdom. Yeah, it does. That's a, I think that's a perfect segue into the second piece. I think 
I agree. And we've largely covered uh, the, the, the very brief We've, we briefly went over the arguments of the first piece. The first piece, of course, goes into much greater detail, but it, you know, philosophy pieces lay out an argument and then argue it for 30 pages. Mm-hmm. And we, we laid out the argument and engaged with it in such a way that I feel okay moving on. Yeah, I agree. Okay. <laughs> so it's a good segue into the second piece, Jesse. Tell us, what is the second piece and what is, compare and contrast well, the, the second piece really, I think, as we were all talking about the beginning of last episode, is kind of a continuation or like a further flushing out of the first piece in that it is explaining sort of if you agree with the claims of what makes a life meaningful, these might be some of the explanations why that weren't fully flushed out in those first 30 pages, which is that a life is a narrative in which you are both author and protagonist. And because of that state, you're simultaneously totally in control and totally not in control of what happens to you. And the way that you make a life meaningful, like we're talking about with the appropriateness of the feeling of life being meaningful, whether or not that feeling is appropriate depends largely, uh, if not entirely, on how you tell the story of the experiences you've had. One of the things I found so impactful about this piece is that the way that we process what has happened to us, how we gain that second knowledge, at least by my analysis, is through telling the story of what happened to ourselves. And so this idea of experience as a story is not just fundamental in the understanding of our lives, but in the accumulation of experience. I think, I don't remember whether it's in this essay or the previous one, but in this section, we talk about how humans are natural storytellers and how we are all very adept at assigning storylines to things. But that's partially because we are one of the only creatures capable of recognizing these patterns she discusses it as i have a quote here in this regard a good life for a person for any creature with the capacity for autonomous agency appears to differ critically from a good life from a non-human animal and this is how it relates to the initial article in that it relates those local goods versus global goods animals only seek to fulfill their immediate desires their local uh pleasures but we are the only ones that seek like we're the only like biological creatures that seek this kind of like ideal like it's like the difference between humans and animals are patterns and dreams or just dreams that's basically what i got from it oh and then mentions ryan white uh points out that maybe not every life that was meaningful was good from what i can gather this article was mainly about like balancing goodness and meaningfulness of life's so like not the main part of the article, but like it was largely about like making sure it was both and how to make it both. And it's largely about the structuring and time when events take place. Like a bad event has to take place before a good event, like in the first article, in order for it to mean more. I mean, I agree with you, not only in your description of the article, but also in that this is just a clusterfuck of an article. Yeah, okay. It feels like there was one central nugget 
which was just the idea of we are storytelling creatures. That is the lens through which we view things. And then expanding out in every different direction into what the implications of that fact are. And, you know, most of them kind of just felt like chaos. But (laughs) that said, the, the core nugget, I pretty solid and maybe even true, dare I say it. We are hesitant to point out anything is true in these last couple sessions. Uh, thank you so much for uh, garbling through, just sifting through that garble of spaghetti I threw at you. Because, yeah, I was basically like, how do I even talk about this article? It's so disjointed. There's so many ideas thrown at you. But I would also agree that, uh, again, I am a jelly-brained idiot, but I, can, and I can't say any kind of definitive truth, but it does feel true to say that humans look at themselves as, I mean, historically, yeah, we're storytelling creatures. And it does support the thesis for narrativity theory. I'm actually surprised they never mentioned that in the first article. Yeah, I am too. I think if I am remembering correctly, these articles are all part of, um, yeah, a philosophy journal published by Stanford. And so... Mm. The, or not a journal, a book, and the way the book is meant to be read is just a bunch of articles that are disconnected from each other. Nightmarish. Read in succession, all seem to be like talking about some underlying ideas that the hope is the reader can pick out, but none of the journal articles themselves were able to pinpoint. What? That sounds like hell and heaven. Yeah. I would spend hours with that. It's like 500 pages total. <gasps> no! That is some nerd's wet dream. Almost mine. It could be. If I took a slightly different path in life, I would be reading that right now. Ah. Well, you expressed it well. You you expressed it well. I think you pretty much... We did it again where we talk about one thing for way too long and at the end we're just like, yeah, that's basically it. Also, the other thing... <laughs> Yeah, this one. Well, yeah, this is more of the companion piece to the first one. It's more just fleshing out those ideas. And I do think it gives a lot more uh, examples for your thesis of hospice because of the, well, the way it begins is by talking about death. It's mainly concerned with the deaths of individuals and the meaningful meaningness of their life in relation to that. And I would be. I am happy saying that the primary nugget is we tell stories. Of course, it feel good to put in stories for us and leave it at that. Unless there are any burning desires that we have to discuss because we do, it has been 40 minutes. Colin, you would know better. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like it's that it goes into individual narratives and, but ultimately it's, you're absolutely right. It, It does talk a lot about how, you know, human beings are, are storytelling creatures and the lens through which we perceive things even before other lenses are applied is through narrative. And I thought actually I liked starting with this one because it left me to infer a lot of the other terms. And when I got to the other one and uh, there was a fair amount of here's what this means. I, you know, Oh, I already know that. You read these on hard mode. We've moved on. (laughs) Like, <laughs> we're, we're on application already. 
It's this was a fascinating read. I want to reread it and pull quotes. I'm amassing a library of philosophical texts that I can pull quotes from if I ever need to write a paper again because I miss school. Um, but yeah, these are fascinating to think about from a perspective of the hospice, especially. And I wish I'd gone into it more with from the perspective of hospice because when you gave us the articles, my first thought was, okay, we're talking about the meaning of life. We're talking about the philosophy around the meaning of life. And I almost, because as we discussed earlier, we had very different viewpoints about what these articles were saying. Um, Not what they were saying, but like what they were saying was implying. And ain't that just the way philosophy do? It is. It's, It's so much fun. It just it says something controversial makes you want to fight about it, but then you feel good at the end of that fight. Yeah. I felt, I heard someone else's view today and I liked it. I liked their arguments and I see how they thought that, you know, I feel exactly the same way. Was I a little out of my depth? Yes. I had fun though. (laughs) For the first time ever, Colin was the one pulling me back on topic. Oh, Oh God. It truly is spooky season. That's the scariest part of these Halloween episodes <laughs> was Colin being left to organize this. Uh, well, Jesse, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute blast and I was honored to be here. We are honored to have you. Yes, indeed we are. Jesse, who have you been? I have been Jesse Fishkin, uh, and I have been happy to be here. Mm. Al, who have you been? I have been a student in the audience of Plato and Socrates and the Greats tonight. I've been living. My name is Al Gropey, and uh, you can find me on my website at alisongropey.com or on Instagram at al.gros. Yes, I am on private, but I accept some people. If if you've tried to Instagram request me and I rejected you, it was probably because I was in the mood that day to not accept anyone I didn't know. I should probably take it off public, and I'm going to keep plugging it on this fucking podcast. Anyway, and who have you been, beard man? I have been Colin Orton, he, him. You can follow me at my name on social media and you can follow this podcast at Leftist Lit Pod on Twitter or send us hate mail at gettinginformedpod at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us. 